The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy, and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. In recent years, allegations of sexual misconduct against high-profile people, particularly men, have been gaining traction, and the Me Too movement has delivered a flood of troubling allegations. On this episode, we're going to talk about what happens after the allegations to the work of performers, writers, and politicians. Not to the person accused, but to their body of work. We're going to start in the world of entertainment. Alfred Martin is here, professor of communication studies at the University of Iowa. Hello, Alfred. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And of course, the the entertainment world is a world where we've seen a lot of allegations against high-profile men. And I want to start with a story with an individual. These allegations have been going on since well before the Me Too movement. Um, I want to talk about Bill Cosby, because uh, this is an individual whose work spans many decades, who... His work has touched so many lives. And then, of course, now these allegations have uh, come forward and he's probably going to be spending the rest of his life in prison. First of all, tell me about your relationship with Cosby's work. Um, so I am I am a child of the 70s. So I grew up um, as a child with uh, Bill Cosby, uh, I'm sorry, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. And then I very viscerally remember the importance of being in front of my television with my family watching The Cosby Show on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. So that show and both of those shows together were extraordinarily important cultural texts uh, because of uh, the politics of representation for black people, um, both in the 70s and in children's cartoons, but in particular in the 80s and spilling over into the 90s with The Cosby Show. Absolutely. And you and I are about the same age. So Mm -hmm. for people who don't remember, The Cosby Show was the show that absolutely everyone watched. I mean, that was an incredible cultural phenomenon. But it, it was important for so many reasons, not just because we all loved it, but this was a black family on television in a way we'd never seen a black family on television before, right? Absolutely. And, you know, as the scholar Janet Steiger says, you know, the Cosby show was the last blockbuster television show, which means that essentially at least 33 and a third percent of everyone who had their televisions on uh, in Eastern time, Thursday at 8 p.m., was watching the Cosby show. So we generally don't see those kinds of numbers unless we're talking about something like the Super Bowl. But here we're talking about a weekly family situation comedy, and it was, uh, it was watched among black families and black people. It was watched among white people, among other ethnic minorities, among the old, among the young. So it was truly one of those shows that everybody, it seemed, was watching. So when you heard about the allegations against Bill Cosby, what was your reaction? Uh, my reaction, uh, because I am typically a cynical person anyway, um, my reaction was that I was shocked but not surprised. Uh, 
um, because we know generally that power corrupts. And so I wasn't necessarily uh, um, shocked that this was um, that this was something uh, that was happening. Um, so I very quickly, um, and I generally tend to teach the Cosby Show within any class that I'm teaching, whether it's television history or whether it's race and ethnicity and media, um, but I immediately sort of shifted to the ways that I needed to teach the, teach the text because it was already in the syllabus and I didn't necessarily want to um, take it out of the syllabus because I still think it's actually very important. So it just shifted in some ways the ways that I needed to teach it. Now, the reaction um, just among entertainment businesses was to pull the Cosby show from syndication. Of course, it, you know, it's a, it's a very old show, so maybe that didn't make as much of a ripple. But I actually found myself thinking, well, I'm glad I showed my kids the Cosby show before these allegations came to light because I'm still glad that they saw it. Um, right. So how did it change how you taught it? In your class, because it doesn't change the importance of this work, but how does it change how you teach it? So I, um, I generally used to teach it just as a representation of blackness and sort of 80s television. Um, I shifted to teach it about audience reception. Um, so within uh, television studies and media studies, there is this notion of the active audience. We are all active audiences when we, uh, when we watch a TV show or a movie in that we're actually bringing everything that we know and everything about us to the TV text. Um, and so early uh, media reception was really about the hypodermic needle model, this idea that we were just these dupes sitting in front of our televisions or in front of film screens, and we were just taking in wholesale the message that the, the thing was trying to deliver. So instead, what I've actually started to teach with The Cosby Show is um, its reception. And I use a piece that talks about the Cosby Show and its reception in the 1980s and how important it was. And then we actually use it to talk about how the students themselves today feel about the Cosby Show and feel about watching it in my class in conversation with everything else that they know. And so it leads often to a very rich discussion about the importance of audience reception and the importance of what we know and how we know it and how that factors into how uncomfortable, how much we enjoy something, um, and how much all of that might come into play when we're watching something. How did your students respond? So, um, so many of my students, um, particularly the female students, did not, they felt very uncomfortable um, watching the show because it was, because they couldn't unknow what they knew. And, um, and many of the male students sort of felt like, oh my God, this guy is a creep, um, particularly because they felt it problematic for this kind of uh, duplicitous behavior. And of course, um, we can't sort of discount the idea that part of the problem with the Cosby show, and I would also add Roseanne uh, in here as well, is that because of the ways that the shows are titled, even as they are playing fictional characters, there becomes this difficulty in separating the star from the role. So 
So in some ways, we collapse uh, Bill Cosby and Cliff Huxtable in the same way that we collapse Roseanne Barr and Roseanne Connor. We've had other high-profile entertainers um, be disgraced. Kevin Spacey comes to mind, and immediately he was fired from House of Cards. Um, when in, in this day and age, when an allegation like that comes to light and, and somebody loses their job, and it's not a show that existed you know, 20, 30 years ago, it's their body of work last year, um, how do you think that that influences our relationship with that art? I mean, House of Cards is still a captivating show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, in some ways it's very, it's very personal because um, in the world of you know, popular culture and celebrity, we in some ways we feel like uh, through people's body of work we get to know them. And so part of what is um, at play in many of the cases that you mentioned is this idea that we feel like we want to be very punitive. We want there to be some sort of um, some sort of thing that says, you know, you did this bad thing, and so like we are going to, in uh, in Kevin Spacey's space, um, uh, instance rather, we're going to take your paycheck from you at least for this project, and you know, presumably. Uh, no one's actually going to hire him at least for a while. And so that makes us as humans feel good because we feel like something is being done. Um, And so um, this is how a concept that I teach called hegemony works. It's about sort of the ways that power operates. And so when these folks like Roseanne, like Kevin Spacey, like Bill Cosby do bad things, we can actually extract them from the system by not allowing them to work, but the system actually keeps on moving and keeps on sort of producing. Now, you mentioned that you're a little cynical, and I think anybody who's studied the entertainment industry has to be a little bit cynical. I I think that there are things that we've known about the entertainment industry for a long time. I mean, the term the casting couch is not a new term. And as you were saying, you know, when we give people a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of adulation, often they don't behave well. And and we know that. But we kind of have this uh, older idea. There are people who seem to be grandfathered in. They're artists. And yeah, they've done some things that are suspect, but they are great artists. And, you know, Roman Polanski comes to mind. Uh, Woody Allen comes to mind. Why, why do you think that work continues to hold up, uh, although the behavior is not different? Um, I think that those, um, that, is, that is the $10 million question. Um, I think in some ways, um, you know, part of it may very well um, have to do with sort of the, the ways that television is still understood as a domestic medium. So this idea that we're sort of bringing Bill Cosby, we're bringing Kevin Spacey into our homes and watching them on television, um, whereas with someone like Woody Allen, we're sort of going out and doing that. So it doesn't feel as um, perhaps as personal. I'm still actually working through how I feel about, about that and how I feel like it has worked out that, um, in particular, Woody Allen, who has been dogged by um, allegations of impropriety for decades, 
and we still have Hollywood starlets lining up to be in his movies. And, you know, and when they're asked about it, even in light of the Me Too moment, you know, many of them are like, hey, I think he's a great artist and he's making great art. We're going to turn now to literature, and Naomi Gracer is joining the conversation, Associate Professor of American Studies, Gender Studies, and English at the University of Iowa. Now, Naomi, um, you uh, teach literature courses, and you actually experienced having one of the people who has faced these allegations uh, being on your syllabus, right, with uh, the, uh, the author Sherman Alexie. Um, well, I have had people on my syllabus who mm-hmm. we've had to engage with this sort of topic around. Um, I do also have a story about Sherman Alexie's presence on a syllabus from a colleague. It wasn't oh, okay. my classroom. Yeah, no, I'd love to, to hear about that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, some... and for people who don't know Sherman Alexie, well-known Native American author and uh, most famous for smoke signals. Um, yeah, and he also wrote You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, a memoir, which is this really devastating and open book that invites people into his life experiences, which I think, um, Alfred, you were talking earlier about that feeling of um, shock and dismay. I think a lot of us felt really um, super disappointed and sad to learn about accusations, especially from Litsa Dramosis. Um, and some other poets and authors about Sherman Alexie. Um, but yeah, I have a colleague who taught Alexie's Hymn, which is a recent really powerful poem about love and kinship and politics. And um, Alfred, as you were saying in screening the Cosby Show with your students, you know, we're increasingly inviting students to pay attention to reception and how they feel when they watch stuff or read things. Um, and one of the students had really strong feelings about the author, the poem, and also the poem's presence in the syllabus. And um, you know, even though the classroom discussion was really open around the issues of love and politics, she expressed a lot of disappointment and dismay and said that it was really not okay that he was on the syllabus at all. She's, she was like, by reading his work and the work of any other, she said, assaulter or harasser, we're giving a voice to him and he does not need to be heard. And she was like, I'm really not okay with this being taught in the classroom whatsoever. Wow. Um, so really powerful. Like she just, she didn't, she didn't want to be present with ambiguity or kind of engage with the text. She just wanted him gone from that space. So it's really interesting response, right? In talking with your colleagues uh, in the wake of allegations about Sherman Alexie, but uh, Juno Diaz and, and others, how are people trying to process what they should do? Because uh, obviously these these works um, are, are still influential works. Yeah, totally. So Juno Diaz, like acclaimed novelist, Pulitzer Prize winner in 2008 for The Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Um, and he was also here in Iowa. He gave this amazing charismatic reading um, a couple of years ago at uh, the Latina Midwest conference that my colleague Claire Fox organized. And he's like witty and funny and a really just charismatic presence. Um, And I think a lot, I mean, I know from talking with a lot of my colleagues on social media and also personally that we're all really struggling about what to do with his work and his text. Um, And I think you asked what to do uh, for a lot of us. um, 
even though I think our students may want somebody gone from the syllabus, as Alfred was saying, it's less about who's on and who's off and more about how we engage with their work um, and something that we tend to call like teaching the conflict. So, I mean, the college classroom is so amazing because we get to invite students into tensions and debates instead of deciding stuff for them. How does that change the conversation, though? Because if you are maybe historically speaking, focusing on a text, right. and now you're talking yeah. about the author totally. himself or herself. No, that's exactly right. And like we like we bring that up, what you just said so powerfully, Charity. Um, and even like the the Oscar Wow text, which is such, you know, this is a text that has like footnotes everywhere. So really, I was talking with your producer and she was like, I tried to read it, but it was really hard to get into it. And I was like, no, me too. It took me a couple of tries to get into it. But it's just critics always talk about the muscularity to its prose. Um, And uh, I think, you know, as Alfred was saying in that instance where like Cosby or Roseanne's names are in the show, so it already brings the celebrity and then the character into tension. Um, we've always talked in literature about the relationship between biography and text, and we want to think about those in relation to each other, but also distinctly. But that balancing act can be super hard when the stories are so hot. So in this particular moment, I personally would probably um, not like banish somebody from my syllabus, but kind of take a break because it's just too hard to clear all that stuff away and get into the text, which is what we're doing in the literature classroom, right? Well, as Alfred and I were talking about with uh, the entertainment industry and really cultural norms in the entertainment industry throughout history, uh, writers have sort of famously been celebrated for uh, Mm -hmm. being often difficult people, people with difficult lives. Uh, Alcoholism seems to play or, or, (laughs) you know, other other, um, substances seem to play a, a prominent role in the lives of a lot of writers. And so when you've sort of created this mystique about what it means to be a writer and how a writer can behave or must behave for their art, that creates a cultural conflict, doesn't it? Absolutely. I agree. And there are really mixed messages about ethics on the one hand and then the kind of cult of personality on the other. And I mean, there's also something about literature and about writing, like Alfred was talking about the domestic medium of television. And there's something really intimate, I think, about reading where we're like pulled into somebody else's world. We like carry books around with us, like authors feel like they've changed the way that we see things. It's a pretty intimate relationship to have with somebody you've never met before. Um, And it does create these cults of personality. And also, I think a lot of the accusers in this case are poets and writers and authors and essayists themselves. Um, And I've taught a lot of their work, a lot of the women writers, um, in fact, more than like, well, I teach, you know, chiclet in America. So <laughs> I'm not teaching Juno Diaz a lot, but um, but I, I have worked on him before. But, you know, I think that um, there is a kind of erotics to admiring someone's work and for writers to getting admiration from a mentor. And that can certainly lead down a slippery slope of abuses of power and has really clearly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, when I think about that student's response, and I'm sure the student that you, that you were citing, the anecdote you shared, she's not the only student no, in the United all. States to have that, that kind of For reaction sure. of, hey, I don't even want to read this. I don't want to look at this. It, it makes me wonder how far in history we go 
back. You know, these are allegations being made today. But if you look at some of the very famous authors through time, I mean, would Ernest Hemingway stand up? Can we no longer read F. Scott Fitzgerald? You know, and and of course, I'm not trying to make Right, you're not saying we shouldn't. You're raising but, issues, yeah. right? I mean, is that something you've talked about with your students? Absolutely. I think you know so much. So, like one of the wonderful things I think about um, English departments today in general, and certainly Iowa English, is we really read a wide array of texts and like make efforts to listen to a diverse number of voices and lots of different aesthetic styles, and are very open with our students around, you know which texts get celebrated and remembered, which might fall through holes in the archive or get forgotten or fall out of print and what it means to recover those um, and really invite them into conversations about like what it means to be looking at whatever we're looking at. I taught a text. I, I'm a 19th century Americanist and I had a student who was kind of like, why are we reading this? Is it a novel? Is it an autobiography? It's a text written by a domestic servant in the 19th century. And by the end of our class, he was like, okay, this text really changed how I think about what a novel even is. Um, But he had to be exposed to it and then exposed to the conflicts around choosing it for the classroom in order to really engage with it. So I think, again, teaching the conflict and being inviting our students into those decision processes as much as possible is really powerful in giving them the tools they need to ask good questions. And then it's not as much about what we read or what's on the syllabus, although those are always important questions to know literary history, but it's really about how we read and the questions we ask while we're doing it, you know? Does it scare you right now to, to uh, have? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> totally. tell, me, tell me why you're scared. No, I mean, I think this kind of call-out culture and, like, going viral, and I, I, I do work on emotion in literature, gender, race in literature, feminism in literature, politics in literature, and, like... I feel I have a lot of tools and training to like create a calm and like structured atmosphere for students to slow down and read closely and engage with tricky issues in the classroom. And the classroom is a wonderful space to do that. But like, yeah, I think we all are a little scared of getting called out or making a mistake. And, you know, frankly, I think we'll probably talk about this further on. Like, we're all human and sometimes say stuff that we would want to be like, you know what, maybe I want to rethink how I read that passage. Or maybe I don't want Sherman Alexia on my syllabus right now. And like that, that should be an open conversation. But as we see, it also can be like an accusation for us as teachers. Alfred, how about you? Do you have uh, some thoughts about that right now, sort of the the reactionary culture that we have at the moment where people may want to say, hey, let's throw this work out. We don't need to look at that. That person is a disgusting human being. Well, I mean, I think that that is certainly a valid sort of thing to sort of say this person is a disgusting human being. (laughs) But I also think that Um, And I think one of the things that I would argue is largely wrong with American culture right now is that we we don't like we don't want to wade through the ugliness of our history. And so I think that in learning through and wading through like the ugly as well as the pretty Mm -hmm. is how we actually stop ourselves from repeating the same mistakes that we made before. Um, so we can also we can we can look back and we look back and we look back with um, with open eyes versus with stars in our eyes looking at, for instance, Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in so doing, we actually can have, I think, a really robust conversation about 
okay, so what were the signs? What did we see? What did we not see? What did we not want to see? And how can we see it in the future? I just, I can't agree enough with what you're saying, Alfred. And with my students, we talk a lot about hate reading as like something we can do in the classrooms. The students are like, I really hate this. And I'm like, yes, let's talk about that. And they're like, oh, I thought I wasn't allowed to hate this. And I'm like, no, no, you're invited to hate read and love read and close read and like track all of the different modes of engagement exactly is not a way of whitewashing history, but engaging with with the complexity. Um, And, you know, one of um, Dixit Ramirez says, um, I realize now that the unabated male gaze of Diaz's characters, the gaze now we're wondering how to connect to the author's own gaze and to his behavior, has always been a part and parcel of why I loved his work from the outset. So she's like really hanging out with that complexity as a Latina reader and critic. Well, and, and we also have a, with Juno Diaz specifically, allegations were made, an investigation has uh, been done by his employers and he's going back to yeah. work. I mean, that that's another question do we are are we at a point in our culture where we can get past allegations if they are not proven? What do you think about that, Naomi? Oh, I thought we were talking to Albert. Um, yeah, I mean, there's I I want to make a distinction too between like it's important to acknowledge that MIT has exonerated him Mm -hmm. um, and that now is also part of the record and part of what we should consider when talking about this and also to make a distinction between like the court of law or um, institutional proceedings on the one hand and then the um, experiences that people have as readers which are always to the side of that and related to it but you know so uh, I mean all of his texts really engage with, again, muscular prose, like hot desire, objectifications of women's bodies, and they always have. So we'll probably keep talking about those things. But yes, we should mention those proceedings. We are talking about, like, could, oh yeah, go ahead, Alfred. I'm sorry, and, and if I could add, you know, part of what Naomi is, uh, is talking about and what is so important that she's talking about is that we need to make space for affect we need to make space for um, different modes of audience reception. Yeah. We need to make space for hate. Um, in media studies, we do um, study full studies on hate watching. Yeah. Um, because that is the <laughs> stuff, like that's the stuff that helps us to really understand what it is. And if we, like, if we just dislike something, then we need to excavate why we dislike it. Mm-hmm. We are talking about legacy post-disgrace this hour with me, Naomi Gracer, Associate Professor of American Studies, Gender Studies, and English at the University of Iowa, Alfred Martin, Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Iowa. And I want to bring Diane Bystrom into the conversation now, Director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. Hello, Diane. Hello, Charity. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And of course... The field of politics is one that uh, is not uh, a stranger to the idea of sex scandals. That's something we've been hearing about for a very long time. But things do seem to be different now. So give me your impression of how you think things have changed in this Me Too era. Well, I think that the big thing that's changed is there's a lot more media attention, I think, on actions and scandals of politicians. Um, And there's been a lot of studies, actually, that show that one of the reasons uh, either uh, voters or the population hang on to a scandal or dismiss it is how much media attention it gets. And so I think, you know, the big difference with the Me Too movement is it's getting, I think, these politicians and as well as actors and and 
uh, authors are getting more media attention and that brings it in the public view and it's um it's also amplified i think by social media and so there's just you know i've, I've talked on the show before that you know, i started my research on women in politics uh right after the 1991 anita hill hearings which again sexual harassment was at the forefront of our uh, political conversations but it sort of quickly died away and so this is the same type of thing only it's being sustained i think by social media, cable television, and just sustained media coverage of bad acts by bad, mostly men. Well, and there has been sort of a rule of thumb in the past about the kind of scandal a politician can um, survive, right, when it comes to sex scandals. Yeah, and it's really very complex. I mean, um, there's been actually some studies, uh, quite a few studies on scandals. You know, some studies have found that if the politician apologizes right away, if there's uh, not sort of uh, pictorial evidence of it, it doesn't involve children, it appears to be consensual. I mean, those types of things more lead to sort of a forgiving uh, public um, uh, voters. And so you have the case of Mark Stanford, who you know, had an affair when he was governor, uh, then was elected to Congress. But then right now he didn't win his primary because basically he was uh, targeted by President Trump as not being uh, supportive enough. And so I think things have changed. But, um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, talk, you know, listening to Alfred and Naomi, I think all of us, you know, when you, we teach in a classroom and, and I think when you teach politics, we've always sort of been involved in this because right. politics is always sort of difficult thing to discuss in a classroom. And and I realize that we are lumping together when we talk about allegations this hour, we're, we're lumping together all different kinds of allegations. And uh, with politicians, often it can be an allegation that someone has had an affair, which is not technically illegal, um, although it can also range to allegations of uh, sexual assault or sexual misconduct or sexual harassment, which is also not necessarily uh, something that, that crosses the line of the law, but can make people very uncomfortable. I mean, when we sort of lump all of these things together, does that make you uncomfortable? Well, I think, you know, all of these cases are not the same. And so that's the thing, you know, and again, but it's hard to sort of have a, a varying scale of what is reprehensible and what is less reprehensible. So in some ways, you know, any kind of scandal that breaks um, is important and is dealt with swiftly. One of the things I've found in just looking at this recently over my course of 20-some years of studying uh, basically women in politics, but also looking at scandals, is the fact that I think one of the things that we're seeing right now that we didn't see in the past is that typically in these scandals that are breaking today, whether they be in the Democratic or Republican Party, the party, and particularly the Democratic Party when it came to Al Franken, they're abandoning the candidate. So that's kind of a new thing that we're seeing. And so if the party sticks with the candidate, uh, as they did with David Vitter's case a couple, you know, several years ago, uh, he's a Republican that uh, basically was going, uh, seeing prostitutes and it broke in 2007 and he was reelected, I think in 2010, you know, that, you know, his party stuck with him. But what has happened now is that neither the Democratic Party in particular, or certainly the Republican Party, some sometimes reluctantly, are sticking with these politicians. So once you lose the support of your party, you basically lose your political job. Do you think that this is a cultural change? I mean, is this a moment in time? Or I know I'm asking you to be clairvoyant, but <laughs> do you think that this really represents a shift in our culture? 
I do think it's a cultural change. And, and one of the things, another piece of research that is kind of relevant, I think, to this show is that there was a recent study by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation that found that uh, women candidates uh, should be talking about the Me Too movement and sexual harassment to be successful in 2018, that mm -hmm. voters are receptive to women candidates, both Republicans and Democrats, who have part of their issue statements uh, that they're going to fight sexual harassment. And the same study found that if politicians criticize the Me Too movement or, uh, or Time's Up movement, that particularly unmarried women and millennial women would think poorly of their campaign. And so I do think it's a moment in time that this is a very issue that is at the forefront of political dialogue. Let's uh, get to the phones. Bryant in Woodburn has a comment that's relevant to the, the political part of this conversation. Hi, Bryant. Hi. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I uh, uh, wanted to mention Al Franken uh, uh, for just a few moments. Uh, Al, you know, was an entertainer and a satirist, and he was very good uh, and uh, was elected uh, to the Senate. And under allegations, uh, he resigned, uh, which I wish he hadn't done because uh, uh I think he was a decent man, and I think he had some good political views. Uh, he may he may run uh, for his Senate seat again, and I hope he does. Briefly, I want to mention Jimmy Dean. Uh, I was a driver for the Jimmy Dean Meat Company and knew Jimmy personally. Now, Jimmy was about 6'5", and he was very good-looking. And women chased Jimmy. <laughs> Whether Jimmy caught any, I don't know. But uh, Al Franken and, and, and so many people uh, who are famous or wealthy or influential, uh, have a tra especially in the sports field, uh, we have women who chase these guys. And it's a feather in their cap if, uh, if, uh, if uh, they have an affair with him. And I, I don't mean to be critical of the ladies because... The two sexes was created to attract one another. Well, Brian, I think we, we get your point. I mean, there there really has been a, a an interesting cultural shift where there was a, a sort of a wink and a nod in our culture in the past, and, and now suddenly that behavior is not considered to be okay. I mean, Diane, I'll, I'll let you respond to that first, and Naomi, I know you have something you want to add as well. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think it talking about what we had before, when Bill Clinton, when it was first, um, you know, revealed that he, in fact, did have a relationship with Mona Lewinsky, an intern, so there's a power dynamic there, even if he said it was consensual. Um, what we did at the time is that, like Al Franken, Bill Clinton was very supportive of women's issues. And so, you know, I lived through those Bill Clinton years, and I think that women basically saw this broader agenda that was pro-woman and forgave him for that indiscretion. And his impeachment hearings were over his line about the incident and not the incident itself. Flash forward to Al Franken, you've got another senator, as the caller uh, identifies, has a, a very progressive agenda, a pro-woman agenda. And I think the difference is, is that um, you know, he didn't lie about it. He immediately apologized, and that's what you should do. But I think that's the case, and where studies have shown, is that there was actually this photographic evidence of him pretending to grope uh, a woman's breast while she was sleeping. And so... That is so visual, and I think it really, you know, and so that's what I think happened in his demise is that he just couldn't fight it. And as I noted previ previously, 
his Democratic colleagues, particularly the Democratic women in the Senate, abandoned him. And he really had no choice, I think, but to resign. We have to contrast at at this point. uh, There was photographic evidence um, with the president of the United States. There was audio. Yes, that's right. So and and the dress. Why? (laughs) Why was no? No, I wasn't talking about Bill Clinton. I'm talking about Donald Trump um, because the the allegations there, um, uh, you know, with Al Franken and Donald Trump, some people could equate some of those allegations, and we had the Access Hollywood audio. We all heard it. Again. uh, Why didn't that resonate in the same way? Because basically research also finds that the act has to contradict the reputation. Mm -hmm. And so what happened in the case of Donald Trump is his reputation by that point was somewhat baked in based on previous comments that he made about women in general, his own daughter on a, you know, on a radio talk show. And so no one expected him to be this perfect, you know, they, he, he was proud in the past of being somewhat of a womanizer. So I think, you know, again, the scandal research leads us down the path that if you're, if your scandal contradicts your reputation, and that's, for example, why a lot of these family family values politicians, who then we find out later uh, did, had a, an affair or you know wanted to pay an intern to conceive their child, you know that's not with that person's reputation, and so the public has much more of a backlash against that. Do you think that um, when it comes to the Future election seasons, do you think that that something like that Access Hollywood scandal would carry more weight because of this cultural shift? I think the biggest thing to look at now is not so much the Access Hollywood tape. I think it's the outcome of the Stormy Daniels situation. And so I think another thing that people don't like is they don't like lying about an affair. So if it's somehow revealed that uh, President Trump knew about payments to Stormy Daniels, that's something that voters have, um, you know, especially if they use campaign money, that's something that voters aren't... um, aren't, you know, they don't accept that. I, I want to give Naomi an opportunity. You had, you wanted to respond to some of what Bryant was saying as well uh, about our culture. Yeah. Well, I appreciated the kind of women chase men comment, which I wanted to hang out with for a second, because one of the things that I think is coming out in this moment of um, Me Too and feminism, especially following up on Tarana Burke's amazing workshops in Alabama in 2007, she's the founder of Me Too, is kind of the complexity of coercion and consent. Um, And I think, um, you know, these questions about, like, how do we recognize coercion or sense it or read it or experience it or respond to it? um, Saying no and saying yes in romantic situations is actually a lot more nuanced than I think we've understood. Um, And my students are incredibly smart about um, laying that out. And we teach a class on desire and consent that talks about chasing <laughs> and dating and all of that stuff. So it is a really amazing moment for us to kind of slow that process down and really look at it. I, I want to get back to the phones. Forrest is on the line with a, an entertainment industry thought. Hi, Forrest. Hi. Um, yeah. I'm traveling from Minnesota, from Rochester. And, you know, I wondered how we rectify things like, um, so Kevin Spacey, you know, we, we're going to punish him, and I don't think they've actually canceled the show, but, you know, we want to punish the actor for what they've done, but then we have other people like Kate Mara and Robin Wright. That's how they make their living. They're affected by this, so we're punishing one person. We're maybe an author. We're just getting the publisher and author. Um, how, what are your thoughts on how we go about punishing them without punishing everyone? Yeah, what what are your thoughts on that, Alfred? Um, well, I think, excuse me, I think that um, in many ways, 
Um, part of what happens, so when we see, for instance, if we sort of step out of the cases we've been talking about today and we, we look at Roseanne, for instance, you know, what they essentially did was they retooled the show. Um, I believe House of Cards, um, which is a show I sort of admit publicly that I don't watch, um, but um, that show, I believe, is going on without Kevin Spacey. So there are sort of ways that um, many of these media companies are trying to mitigate the um, the punishment from sort of spilling over into um, into these other folks. Um, and I do think that that is um, that that is a a good move to try to help folks continue to be able to make a living for themselves. But at the end of the day, we also have to recognize that these um, these media companies are media companies, and they're part of huge, huge conglomerates. And so part of the reason I would suggest that uh, ABC was so swift in canceling at least the Roseanne show as we knew it, or the reboot of Roseanne as we knew it, was because they didn't want it to sort of spill out and affect all of their other brands. And so it's really, in some ways, it's about brand management and brand containment. And so the the way that companies react actually has a lot more to do with how the public is reacting. Exactly. Because and making so it, money is the name of the game. Yep. And so um, and so this idea, I mean, and, you know, these a lot of these actors, in many ways, uh, the folks who are on shows that get canceled because of, uh, because of these kinds of scandals, the fact is, is that many of those actors will get other work. The fact is, is that the Cosby Kids and Felicia Rashad, in particular, they made the the lion's share of the money they were going to make in syndication off of the Cosby Show. So, in many ways, I mean, and to be sure, Bill Cosby also made most of his money already off of the syndication deals for Cosby Show because nobody generally was paying to resyndicate. Um, the Cosby show, because it's so old. Right. Well, before we run out of time, I, I want to circle back around to this conversation about legacy. And Diana, I want to ask you, you brought up Bill Clinton a few minutes ago, and he uh, has been taking an interesting turn in his career, collaborating on a novel recently, and even on the, the book tour, finding that the way that people view his relationship with Monica Lewinsky has perhaps changed and, and affected his work today. Let's let's talk about uh, how you feel about our changing understanding, our changing feelings about what is OK and what is not OK and how that really affects the legacy of we'll focus on a politician with you, but the legacy of anyone. Well, certainly with Bill Clinton, and I've studied Hillary Clinton for uh a number of years. And so as part of that, you also study Bill Clinton. So I will say that this is not the first time uh, since he was president that Monica Lewinsky has come up. There have been several times, for example, anytime his wife campaigns for something, for example, that affair is brought up and somehow blamed on her. And so that came up when she ran for Senate uh, in New York. That came up when she ran for president twice in in 2008 and 2016. And so that has kind of ebb and flowed. You probably even remember that Al Gore didn't even really want him on the campaign trail. So mm -hmm. he's really been considered an asset or not an asset. So this is really nothing new for Bill Clinton. And I think the big thing, and I want to go back to something Alfred said that I think is really important for us who teach, is that we have to look at the uh, ugly situations in our past to learn from them. And certainly in the case of Bill Clinton, if you're teaching a class on the presidency, you just can't leave Bill Clinton off the syllabus. And so what you need to do, I think, is I think we need to 
uh, as classroom professors, and my discipline is also communication, and, and I think in the professions represented here, we have sort of an, an opportunity, I think, to engage our students in difficult dialogue mm-hmm. to where they can understand their past, past and appreciate their future. Diane Bystrom, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Diane Bystrom, director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. We have just a, a minute left. Alfred, I, I want to ask you, as, again, I'm asking for a little bit of clairvoyance, but, uh, you know, looking into the future, how do you think that these kinds of scandals are going to affect how we view somebody's work? And, and we do have a case study of that uh, with Michael Jackson, for example, um, how we view his work after his death. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, Bill Cosby in particular um, in this in this instance, I think in many ways when we sort of write his obituary, it's really going to be, you know, um, you know, comedian, star of the Cosby show. I don't, I think that these things, uh, these kinds of allegations will ultimately end up being a footnote because, you know, the best way to submit your legacy is to die. Um, because no um, terrible people generally don't die. Everybody, when they die, we're like, oh, my God, they were so great. And so I think that that's generally what's going to happen in the case of folks like Cosby, and I would even argue folks like Roseanne. I think this is just going to be a blip on the radar. I've been talking with Alfred Martin, professor of communication studies at the University of Iowa, Naomi Greiser, associate professor of American studies, gender studies, and English at the University of Iowa, and Diane Bystrom, director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. You've been listening to Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, produced by Emily Woodbury, Lindsay Moon, and Caitlin Harrop. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is a production of Iowa Public Radio.